are no longer slaves to sin. That is the beautiful outflow of the gospel. Hey, thanks for joining us here at the church at Suncoast. Take your Bibles and let's get into God's Word. Matthew chapter 13. In order to introduce a new concept to the human mind, it is helpful to bridge that new idea with something we already know. We do this all the time. If you're going to teach something foreign to the human mind, relate it to something that the mind knows. All of us have eaten strange things, and people have asked us, what does it taste like? It tastes like chicken. <laughs> Everything tastes like chicken. Rattlesnake tastes like chicken. So we're taking something we know, eating chicken, relating to something we don't know. I'm from up, up north. We ate a lot of lamb chops up there. Down south, they don't do that so much. So if you were to ask me to describe a lamb chop, it is a dark pork chop that's a little greasier. That's what I would tell you. I'm relating, I'm building a bridge from what you know to what you don't know. So when Jesus introduces to us the kingdom of heaven, we haven't got a clue about what he's talking about. We know the kingdom of men and the kingdoms of this world. Isn't it interesting when we think of the kingdoms of this world, we use the plural, kingdoms. Jesus, we know that. We were born into, we understand these kingdoms. Jesus introduces not the kingdoms, plural, of heaven, but the unified, singular kingdom of heaven. That's interesting because everything man does, he does in division for one another. Everything God does, he unifies mankind into one kingdom. But we haven't got a clue as to far as what is the kingdom of heaven. So he relates it for us in parables. He has given us in chapter 13, 7. And before we do a quick review of these seven and how they all fit together, let us remind ourselves of what the kingdom of heaven is. Jesus said it clearly in, in the Lord's Prayer. I'll read the first couple lines to you. Our Father in heaven, how holy be your name. Then he says, your kingdom come. And then he describes it as your will be done. There it is. In capsule form, the, the, will, the will of the Father is being played out in the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ. Those who are doing his will by focusing on it, because the kingdom is, of man is my will be done. We understand that. We are self-actualizing all the time. We are self-promoting all the time. I am the center of my kingdom, the center of my world. Everything that promotes my kingdom is to be embraced. Everything that tears my kingdom down is to be rejected. But in the kingdom of God, it's his will be done. That's the essential difference between the two. Jesus said in another place, he said, you look for the kingdom here and you look for the kingdom there. The kingdom is actually within you in submission to the king. So where his will is being done and wrought out, there's the kingdom of heaven. So he gives us seven parables, which is God's divine number for completion and perfection. 
He splits it down between four prayer parables that he gives to the multitudes and the disciples, four being the number of the earth, north, west, east, and south, four seasons. This is God's horizontal view of the kingdom. You've got to see all of it. This is how we look at it horizontally along with God. Four parables given to the multitudes, and they are realistic viewpoints of what the church has looked like for the last 2,000 years. The first parable is that one in four believers actually ever gets to growing. 25% of the seed that has been sown actually takes root and grows and brings forth fruit back to God. And anybody in church work, anybody, not to be discouraging, but you look out and many saved, maybe not so many disciples. May the odds be ever in your favor, and may the twenty, may you be in the 25%, and may it be way beyond 25% in this church. But as a whole, only 25% ever grow. The, the parable that Caleb preached was the wheat and the tares, that there are those sitting next to you and don't look next to you, but there are those sitting among us that are false believers, that aren't really believers, just showing the show and doing the deal, looking like the rest of us. Maybe they're up here preaching. Maybe they're preachers. Maybe they're singers and choir leaders. Maybe they're song worship leaders. I'm telling you, through the age of the, of, of the church, hasn't it all come out that those who faithfully worked in the church have ended up renouncing the faith and leaving. They were tares. If it doesn't get any more discouraging, the third parable is all about the mustard seed bush that grew beyond its bounds. And it's a picture of the church that has gone way beyond the simplicity of just a group of disciples worshiping and growing in Jesus to this big commercial engine of a church where these huge buildings have to be maintained by huge crowds, where preachers are taking huge amounts of money, and it's ornate, and go look and see how that works over in Europe with the cathedrals they built hundreds of years ago. They're empty, dead museums. Then the fourth parable is the woman who put leaven in three measures of meal, talking about hypocrisy of motive within the church, talking about false teachings within the church, the prosperity gospel, the healing gospel, the social gospel, the political gospel, all through is all these offshoots of the truth into heresy and falsehood. There you have the church. I know that's not pretty, but isn't it real? Don't be discouraged because it doesn't take God by surprise. And also, within the church, there's this remnant of true believers that are marching to Zion. They're marching to the Holy Land. It's okay. God knows. God knows. We aren't to abandon the baby with the bathwater. We're not to cast off the idea of the church. It was his idea. He died for his body. But we're not to have this ostrich with his head in the sand hiding from the truth of what it really looks like. Well, if we were left with the four parables, we might get a little discouraged. But the last three parables are the divine vertical viewpoint of how God looks at his brides. And they are greatly encouraging, three being the number for God. So we dealt with last week, and by the way, I'm not rushing through especially these last three. 
We only did one verse last week, and we're only doing two verses because I want us to take our time and look at this pearl of great price. We're not going to rush over this. There's much to be meditated on and looked at. So let's look down at chapter 13 after that long and audulous introduction down chapter 13 to verse 44, 45. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Now right here we see a difference from the last parable. The parable of the hidden treasure, there was a man who found. Here we have a merchant who is seeking. There's, there's difference here. Now we know from the man and the other parables is talking about Christ. Because you can get the interpretation from one parable from what Jesus clearly explained from another parable. So the man is all, but here is not a man. Here is a merchant. And he is busy and actively seeking. That's one difference. Let's go on in the verse. He's searching for fine pearls. Not a treasure that he finds, but he has a goal in mind. And they are fine pearls. He's a pearl merchant who, on finding, notice, one pearl of great price, contrast a treasure trove with a singular object, a pearl. What did he do when he found this one pearl of great price? He went and sold all that he had and bought it, purchased it. Notice he doesn't cover it up like the man with the treasure. He doesn't cover this pearl. He sells all the other pearls and every bit of possession. He gives everything away to get this one deal, this one valuable pearl, and to take it to himself. So what does this mean from God's, how God looks at the church, that, that nation of the redeemed believers that he is pulling out from this world? What does this mean? I'm going to give you some suggestions for you to think about. I'm going to suggest to you that the merchant isn't Jesus Christ, it is the Father. Because it is the Father who seeks us. Let that sink into your mind. He is seeking you. Do you know that? He cares so deeply that we who were in rebellion against him, he is actively going after us constantly, both as the lost to get saved and the saved to grow in his grace. He is after your heels. You don't have to search for God. All you have to do is turn around and he'll bump into you. He is behind you. He is in front of you. He is around you and he's actively seeking you. The prodigal son was off in a far country and there was, where was the father? He was on the porch. Why are you on the porch? He's looking out over the pastures waiting for his son to come home. And when he sees his son walking at a distance, what does he do? He runs. In this, in this Jewish culture, it was dishonorable for men of a, of a stature to run. He lays all that aside and he ran to you and he ran to me and he embraced us with great joy. We were the pearl he sought and the pearl he found. It is the merchant who seeks for you. You don't know Christ today. He seeks for you. Nobody in this world seeks for you. Do you know that? No man goes after you and I. Everything we've done, the world doesn't care about us. Satan doesn't care about us. Maybe those nearest and dearest care a bit about us. Nobody loves you like the Father loves you. 
Nobody goes after you. He knows the hurt. He knows the pain. He knows what you've gone through. He runs for you. Second of all, the pearl. The pearl in the Jewish culture was not esteemed of value. In the Gentile culture, it was. You can just imagine the look of these Jewish disciples when he's talking about a merchant going after this great valuable pearl. They didn't look at it like that. On the ancient breastplate of the Jewish priests, there were no pearls. There were sapphires and rubies and all kind of beautiful gemstones, but not pearls. They had no value at all or little to the Jew. But to the Gentile, they did. I believe this is the Father seeking you and I, along with the Jew, but specifically going out of the bounds of the Jewish territory to go after you and I, us old Gentiles. That's what we are. We're non-Jews. We're Gentiles. We're the heathen. Amen. Some of us are more heathen than others, but we're all heathen. This is a picture of the Father going after the entire world. What did he capture? He captured a pearl. Let's talk about the pearl and what it is. It is one of the only gems, one of the only valuable things of its nature that comes out of a living organism. Dig a sapphire up, dig a ruby up. It's just dead composition packed in a certain way with certain heat elements, but not an oyster. An oyster is a living creature. Now, you know the story of how pearls come to be. If you don't, I'm, I'm going to remind you or educate you. What happens in an oyster is it has a seal around it, and if that seal is broken, a foreign matter gets into the oyster and in essence wounds the oyster. Now, we all hear the proverbial grain of sand. Very few times was it ever a grain of sand. Normally, it's a parasite, something that wants to suck off and breed off and eat and live off the oyster itself. So a parasite gets in and wounds it. Think of a splinter in your finger. That's what it does to an oyster. Now, when we get a splinter, the first thing we want to do is what? Get it out. If we can't get it out, the body does certain things to fill up with yeah, certain fluids that try to force the splinter out. That's how we were. Not an oyster. An oyster can't do that. So what he does to that wound is he begins to take the same solution that he uses to build his shell and begins to encase that infection, encase that parasite, and cover it up. And over layer, and lay and kills the parasite, but watch this, the parasite is still there within the oyster. Remember that for later. So over time, he just the oyster continually soaks that area and covers it and covers it and covers it until you get oyster. Thank you. Once in a while, I go south like that, so I make sure you're listening. Okay, that's, that was a pearl. There are all kinds of colors of pearls. Did you know that? Black pearls. Uh, brown, pretty white cream. There's all kinds of yellow pearls. There's all kinds of pearls. You know, I just, just because I study this stuff throughout the, the largest pearl in the world is 75 pounds. Yeah. That's a collective wow. Now, not a big circle. Don't think you're going to stick that on your finger. It's not like this circular thing. It's kind of lumpy at all. But there it is over in the Philippines. It's a big one. You know, there's a difference between, and I'm drawing to some conclusions, so I want you to stay with me. There's a difference between cultured pearls and natural pearls. Do you know what that, the difference is? On a cultured pearl, they actually take an oyster and they force their way into it, and man puts something in there 
in order to affect and, and creates the pearl. Not a natural. Natural happens in the natural environment. Okay, think about what Jesus taught us in this. Meditate on who is the parasite that wounded the oyster. It's us. We wounded Jesus Christ. We wounded him with our sin. We wounded him because we, because of sin, are parasites. I know you came to church to be encouraged, but I got to, I'll encourage you in just a minute. Apart from Christ, we are we 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 just live on other people and things. We are parasitic. We wounded him on the cross when he died for our sin. The Bible says he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be encased with him and, and, and become a pearl. We might become the beautiful righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ is the pearl. We, Christ in us is the pearl that the merchant seeks. The one great pearl. Notice one, not many. Always think of yourselves, church, as a singular body of Christ. We are one with one another, are we not? God sees us as that one singular pearl. I want you to go to Revelation, the book of Revelation. It's one of the last chapters in Revelation. It's chapter 21. If you don't want to turn that, you can look. It'll be behind me in just a moment. Chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 19. Let me show you what happens to this pearl that we are. Okay? Chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, verse 19. This is the holy city. All of redemption has taken place. The thousand years is over. New Jerusalem is, is here, and this is the temple. John writes this. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third was a gate, the fourth emerald. Go to the next slide. The fifth onyx, the sixth uh, keniel, the seventh crystallite, and the eighth beryl, and the ninth tobaz, and the, I hadn't planned on reading all, and the seventh, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amorist. That's the wall. Go to the next slide. Is there a next slide? There it is. And the 12 gates, you ready for this? Are 12 pearls. Notice each of the gates made of a single pearl. Streets of gold, like transparent glass. It does not say that the pearl is placed on top of the gate. It says that the pearl is the gate itself. Imagine the size of this city. Imagine the size of those gates. Imagine the size of a pearl big enough to bore a hole through in order to make the gates that go through. Are you ready for the big point of the day? The parasite that injured the pearl, where was it? It was in the middle of that pearl. It stays in the middle of that pearl. You buy a pearl somewhere in the middle. You can't see it. It's the parasite. Right now in us, believers, there is sin that still dwells in us. The parasite is still there. It can rise up in our flesh anytime. We know that. Look at that, Steve. What happens to the parasite when we get to glory? It is bore through it and it exists no more. It is the gaze by which we revel to go into the city of God. We have no more flesh, no more sargos, no more sin within us. It has been bore through by the blood and life of Jesus Christ, and we are completely free. Can you see that? Can you imagine that? 
It is a glorious thought to revel in that someday we will not deal with the old Mike and the old you and I anymore. Free, free indeed. I was saved 40 years ago. I am in the process of being saved from my, and then when I get there, we will be completely redeemed from any remembrance of any touch and taint of sin itself. Oswald Chambers, in his message on redemption, says this, we can never expound the redemption we must have, but we must have, in other words, we can never explain the depths of this redemption, but we must have strong, unshaken faith in it so that we are not swept off our feet by actual things, by the first four parables, that the devil and man are allowed to do as they like as a mere episode in the providence of God, a passing thing. Everything that has been touched by sin and the devil has been redeemed. We are to live in the world unmovably banked in on that faith. Unless we have faith in the redemption, all our activities are, are fussy, and he uses a word back, I'm sure 100 years meant something, are just fussy activities which tell God he is doing nothing. We destroy our souls serving Jesus Christ instead of abiding in him. I love that. We destroy our souls by busily serving him instead of abiding in him. Jesus Christ is not working out redemption. It is complete. We are working it out and beginning to realize it by our obedience. Our practical life is to be molded by our belief and solid faith in this redemption. This is the ground on which we stand. This is the great pearl of Christ. Christ who has wrapped himself around you and creating something beautiful where there was not something beautiful before. It is Christ. It is not us. I was thinking in Sunday school something that I've been thinking about for a while. Let me tell you a personal experience I had right here in this church months and months ago. Many of you remember my old coach, Coach Collins, who came, sat right down there, visited from down south. Hope he comes back again. Honor to have that fellow who had a lot of influence in my life. But as a teenager, I was anything but an honorable young teenager. I didn't have a lot of integrity. I got in some trouble, not as bad as my brother and sister, which was redeeming for me because my folks were just, you know, they said, well, you're, you're bad, Mike, but you're not as bad as them. <laughs> but I was anything but a, man, a young man of honor. and I just wasn't. I made mistakes. I regret my younger life as a teenager. As he walked up to me, and, and there are people in your life, you want them to look, look to you like with value. So he came up to me and he said, you know, I, he's almost without words. He, he's like, I, I don't even recognize you, who you've become. And I shook his hand and I said, coach, it's Christ. It's just all of him. That's not the experience I want to tell you. It's all of him. I shook his hand and he said, you're right. And he walked out. There's a part of me that wanted to say, it's Christ. It's a little bit of me too. That pride that still wants to value something, something in us apart from him. But it's all of him. It is always all of him. If we are people of integrity and people of honor, if we are people that glorify him, there's nothing that comes from my part of it. My part of it is parasitical. And when it's all of him, he creates a beautiful life that is focused on him. He gets the glory the honor and the, and, and, and the fellow who was running 
naked among the tombs, screaming crazy, is now sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. It's all of him. I give you three things, and then we'll call it a day. He's the one who always searches for us. Never forget, he's searching for you right now. He knows where you're at. He wants you to understand the closeness and the redemption that he has given you. He wants you to be within that 25% who brings fruit and glory. Not because he needs fruit and glory, but because we were designed for that. We were designed to bring him. And we find our greatest fulfillment when we're in that 25% growing in grace. Number two, we are the one who has, he is the one who has, he, this, we are the one who has wounded. On that cross, he bore our sin, our rebellion. That's reality. That's how you get saved. To see him as your sin substitute. That's also how you can see that in me dwells no nope. His sins have been washed away, yes, but he's also dealt with a parasite that lives inside of me that would tear me down and destroy in that 75%. And number three, he is the one who has covered us with his beauty, his pearl. I was right the first time when I told Christ. Kind of hurts the pride, doesn't it, sometimes? I know that within me, but Christ, he has made us beautiful. And that's the beauty that he has created us for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pause and thank you that you've given us a divine perspective. Not of our individual lives, but as our life as a church, as a, as a body of believers. That we, wrapped up in Jesus Christ, and Christ wrapped up around us, is the beautiful pearl, the singular pearl, that the merchant sought and and paid everything in the price of his son to redeem, to buy. And he doesn't cover it up. Lord, you don't cover us up. In your glory, you, you see us fully. We thank you for that. I pray that anyone here who doesn't know you, they call on the name of the Lord to save them from their sin, seeing that Christ has died for them. And for the rest of us, Father, that we would align ourselves with this vertical viewpoint and see ourselves as the body of Christ like you see a beautiful, priceless pearl that is willing, that is, that is all that the Father, all that the merchant sold to get. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Hey, thanks for joining us today at the Church at Suncoast. We pray that the message was a blessing to you. If we can be of any help, don't hesitate to contact the church on our Facebook page or at suncoastjacks.org. If you are in the listening area, we'd love to have you attend any of our services. We hope you have a great day, and we'll see you next time.